I pray how the Lord would use that prayer request to answer it in our hearts this morning. Pray that the Spirit of God will continue to refresh us and give us the joy of salvation. And as we do that, as we pray and wait for the Lord to do that, I encourage you and invite you to open Scripture to the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. If you um, did not bring a Bible to church this morning, we encourage you to use one of the pew Bibles uh, that is in front of you. It's one of the black pew Bibles. Um, on page number 919, encourage you to open Scripture. Keep it open. We'll be looking at that passage, and uh, hopefully everything we say this morning uh, comes from that passage. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning in the book of Acts, chapter, 19, uh, chapter 11, verse 19 through 30. Here it is. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch when he came and saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem and to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts this morning. Would you join me in the word of prayer? Our gracious Father, we thank you. We praise your name for your goodness and for the word that you have given to us. What privilege it is for us to hear again from you. Would you open our hearts by your Holy Spirit? Let us hear this truth so that our hearts might respond to you and turn to you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, friends, this story in Acts 11 is about how the gospel came to Antioch, how it extended to this important city in the, book, uh, in, in the Roman Empire. It is an important marker in the book of Acts, especially after the last two chapters where we have seen the, the conversion of Cornelius. The story of the gospel uh, extending to Antioch tells us about the expansion to the Gentiles, that it was not just an accident or some sort of unusual, miraculous event as in the case of Cornelius, but that it was going to be an ongoing part of the story of the gospel extending to the ends of the earth. 
the conversion of Cornelius was just the beginning. But what's surprising in the fact that the gospel is extended to Antioch is that it doesn't have all the, wi- the bells and whistles that were present in the story of Cornelius. No angelic appearance, no visions, and it seems there's not even a struggle. Remember how in the story of Cornelius, there was such a struggle from the Jews to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the Greek-speaking people. But this is no longer present in the story of Antioch. As a matter of fact, we are, we are told that the Jews would not preach the word about Jesus except to the Jews. That's how the passage begins. But then, but then there's some believers who somehow dared to speak to Greek-speaking people about Jesus. And what's amazing about this story and what shocks us about this story is the simplicity of speaking about Jesus. Did you, especially if you were here the last few Sundays when we looked at the, at the story of Cornelius and the struggle and how God was trying to convince the Jews to take the gospel to the Gentiles, now all of that seems to be put aside and there's a simplicity of some anonymous Jews speaking the word about Jesus to, to Greeks. And then Antioch is, of course, a, a, an important city in the Roman Empire. It is the third um, city in the Roman Empire at this time. Uh, Josephus tells us that it was the largest, the third largest, after uh, Rome and Alexandria. It had a population of about 500,000. Now, according to modern standards, that's not a big deal. That's a small city. But according to first century standards, that is a huge, huge city. And it's amazing that the gospel gets to penetrate to Antioch. But for, for the book of Acts, Antioch has two reasons why it's such a big deal. Not because it was a big city. It's not like the gospel finally reached a big city of Rome. That's not really the, the biggest deal. First of all, it's, it's big in Acts because Antioch will become the center of the mission to the Gentiles. It will become an important part in, in the life of the gospel in the book of Acts. But the second reason why the gospel reaching Antioch is a huge deal for the book of Acts is because this is the place where the, defilo- where the followers of Jesus were first given the name Christians. Up until now, Luke referred to the disciples of Jesus by using many names. And here's a list of some of the names how Luke described those who followed Jesus, those who believed in Jesus and actually turned to Jesus and followed him. Here are some, some, some names. Here are some titles. They're called disciples. They're called saints. They're called brethren. They're called believers. They're called those who are being saved. They're called those who belong to the way. But now, for the first time, this group of people is called Christians. First time in history, they're nicknamed Christians. Now, why were they called Christians? Because their life and speech modeled so closely what Christ did and taught, that people 
gave them the name Christianoi, little Christs. These guys really acted like Christ. To look at them, it's like, man, you guys are all over this Jesus thing. Jesus is all over your lips, in your speech, in your actions. And you guys are like, like little Christs. Well, today, the name Christ, a Christian, has lost its initial meaning. Today, we give the name Christian to anyone who goes through the rite of baptism, anyone who has a membership in a church, or even to people who choose not to associate with the church. We would still call them Christians. Or even to people who really have very little to do with Jesus, very little knowledge about Christ, but they still call themselves Christians, and we still call them Christians because they ha somehow had some Christian background at some point in their past. Today, we bestow the name Christian with such ease and superficiality. In Antioch, this name was bestowed because these disciples were following Jesus so closely that they were given the title by outsiders. Oh, friends, if we could recover just a fraction of the reasons why these disciples were called Christians, if we would bestow this name only on those who indeed were followers of Christ, and not simply those who pretend to be so. This name, friends, has become a mockery in our society. Today, many laugh at the name of Christians. And the first thing that comes to mind for many is that they're a bunch of hypocrites. And the churches are interested only about money. I was talking this week with... A, a man in, in Hope Depot, he was preparing the paint for me. So as we were waiting for the paint to be, to be finished and, and ready to, for me to take it home, we, we got into conversation and talked about his religious beliefs. And soon we talked about Christianity. And I said, why, why did you stop going to church? Because church is about money and about people who are not really doing what they claim. When the world outside of us hears the name Christian, that's what they hear. That's what I heard this week. Today, the name Christian has lost its dignity and has lost its true meaning. We think of it as a status. We think of it as some sort of label that is anything but that which, is for, which it first meant. In Antioch, as I was preparing for this week, I was lamenting in my heart because we're called to go back to the roots of when did this label even start? And today, it's so different. It's so different. It's sad. Why? Who brought this reproach? to this name. I tell you, it's not the world out there. Something happened to the church. Something happened to the church. 
But now this, me this name means something different to many people. So my hope this morning is that as we look back to the time and day and the place where disciples were first called Christians, that we might recover something about what it meant. What did it mean then? How did it get there? And what could we do today perhaps to recover some of that dignity, some of that meaning, some of that significance for us today? If you like to take notes, I'll have six points. Six points of what it means. How did the gospel get to Antioch? How did it get there so that we might recover some of the stuff that happened there? We might bring that today. Six, six things, six characteristics. If you like to take notes, here's the first one. The simple speaking about Jesus. The simple speaking about Jesus. What is amazing about this account of how the gospel reached Antioch is that we have neither a vision from an angel or some sort of a special vision to compel people to speak about Jesus to the Greeks. What was unusual was that they simply spoke about Jesus to the Greeks. Why is this a big deal? Because up until now, verse 19 tells us that up until now, ever since the persecution of Stephen, these Jewish Christians, these Jewish believers, would only speak to other fellow Jews or Jewish-speaking people. But now, some anonymous people, anonymous believers, we don't know their names, speak about Jesus to the Greeks. Look at verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. No church services, no outreach programs. There are people who believe Jesus, who follow Jesus, and they began the simple speaking about Jesus to the people they met. Let these Greek-speaking people hear about who Jesus is, about his life, about his teaching, about his death for our sin, about his resurrection as the Son of God, about his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, about his promise to come back. Let the Greeks hear about this Jesus and then call them to repent. Repent of their sins and trust. Friends, it was simply this act, simple act of speaking about Jesus. About what he has done, about what he will do, about what he calls us to do now. Simply speaking about Jesus. That's it. That's how the gospel got to Antioch. That's it. It was not an un, it was not an organized effort. There was no special campaign. There was no program. There was no special commission from an angel. These believers simply spoke about Jesus. 
Friends, evangelism is done by ordinary people speaking simply about Jesus. That's evangelism. Oh, friends, if we could recover in our evangelism the simplicity, if we could recover here at Park Hills Baptist Church in our evangelism the simplicity. I was talking this weekend with a friend from out of town who um, asked me, what are we doing um, as a church to do outreach? And uh, my response to him is, we're teaching our people that evangel- evangelism at its core is simply speaking about Jesus. No outreach program, just equipping the whole church to speak about Jesus in the context where they already are, with the people they already hang out with during the week, at work, in their neighborhoods, friends, whoever we're encountering in our regular lives, simply speak about Jesus. We are recovering the simplicity of speaking about Jesus. One of the books we're going through is a book by Max Stiles, uh, Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks About Jesus. We start in home groups. We encourage you to get a copy of that as well. If you're a member of this church, it's free for you. Um, if you're not a member of this church and would still like to have that, we'll give it to you as well. But we are trying to recover the simplicity of speaking about Jesus wherever we are. Friends, we have made evangelism way too complicated, way too organized, way too planned. Special decisions, emotional experiences. No, just speak about Jesus. Why don't we get back to that basic act? That's the first point. Second thing that we see in the book of Acts in the story of Antioch is a meaningful response of true faith the meaningful response of true faith. Look at verse 21. Luke tells us that the speaking about Jesus produced some results. And look at the result it produced. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. Did you get that? A great number who believed turn to the Lord. In other words, it's not simply believing the message, but acting upon it. When people believed what they heard, they actually turned to the Lord. This is saving faith. It is that kind of faith that makes you and others turn to the Lord. Now, this has an important uh, impact in our evangelism. It means that we don't just declare the facts about Jesus, but also tell people that God is calling them to turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus. There is a clarity. There is a call to act upon the news of what Jesus has done. Christ was crucified for our sin so that we may be enabled to turn to Jesus. But it's only those who turn to him will be saved because true faith is a faith that makes us turn to the Lord. Oh, friend, if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, or perhaps you're not sure, you think you agree with the claims of Christianity, I wonder if you've ever turned to the Lord. 
have you turned to the Lord? Has your faith in Jesus or your faith about Christianity led you to actually turn to the Lord? There are many people today who believe. They're happy to believe in God, in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, in this whole Christianity. They're happy to assent, to give acknowledgement to these truths, but may have never actually turned to the Lord. Such belief is similar to the belief of the, of the demons who believe. They even shudder. They're not able and unwilling to turn to the Lord. There is no saving experience in that kind of faith that doesn't lead one to turn to the Lord. And friend, if you are a Christian here this morning, think you are a Christian this morning, but you've never turned to the Lord, I pray that today would be a day when you would do so. And if you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. But notice this phrase, those who believed what they heard, turn to the Lord. That means we need to speak the gospel, those of us who have turned to the Lord, in such a way that we make that call clear. Here's a third point for those of you taking notes about what was going on in the book of Acts in, in the story of Antioch, about this, uh, this, this gospel expanding, the clear cause of evangelistic success. The clear cause of evangelistic success. What is the explanation that Luke gives us uh, about the success of the gospel in Antioch? Look again at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was upon them. Once again, Luke emphasizes the Lord's role in the process of conversion. The reason why they're speaking about Jesus caused such wonderful results was because the hand of the Lord was upon them. A similar point is made by Barnabas when Barnabas arrives to Antioch. He gets there, and uh, what does he conclude? To what does he attribute the growth of the gospel in Antioch? Well, look at verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. What gave him joy was not the creativity of the outreach of the church in Antioch, he was not impressed by how innovative they were of speaking to the Greeks. That was a very creative, very new idea. But that's not what gave him joy, their innovation. It was when he saw the grace of God. It's as if Luke cannot overemphasize enough the source of the success of the gospel in Antioch. The hand of the Lord the grace of God. Now, friends, this is important for us to be reminded of this truth because it's very subtle and how subtly we fall in the trap of attributing a church's success to human ideas, human creativity, human organization. Can I give you an example of this subtle trap? Can I give you an example of what I've heard multiple times here in our own midst in the city of Austin we're speaking to other people. I've heard people say that we should visit growing churches and see what they're doing to grow. It's a very common, humanly wise idea so that we might get some growth here as well. Now, let me clarify. There's nothing bad 
in desiring to see the church of the living God grow. We even have a song in which one of the stanzas expresses that desire, oh, that we would see the church of God grow, be filled. But, and and let me say also something really positive. We always should examine if we're being faithful in what the Lord calls us so that we might grow. So we should examine, we should desire to grow, and we should examine to see if we're faithful to the Lord so that we, we can see growth. So those are good things. And yet, what is flawed in that suggestion is the assumption and the confidence that the success of the church is ultimately in what people do. What are they doing to grow? We're, we're looking at what they do, not at the Lord and what He's doing. We're looking at what people do. That's the problem. It is such a subtle trap because the desire is good. The ultimate end is good. We want to see the church of God grow. But the confidence is flawed. That's what we need to realize. Barnabas concluded differently. When he gets to, the, to Antioch, what does he see? He sees the grace of God. He sees the hands of God working in that congregation, and he attributed the success not to what people were doing, but to the grace of God. The account of the church in Antioch tells us believers were speaking about Jesus. The hand of God was upon them. God's grace abounded among them. And so it was the Lord who added to their numbers. This is where our confidence must be. This does not mean, does not mean in any way that we should sit around and do nothing. If anything, I am calling you, I'm calling us back to the simplicity of speaking about Jesus, every one of us. I'm calling us back to that. And then I'm calling us back to trusting God, that God will make that word which you speak fruitful. If you don't speak it, don't ask, don't expect the Lord to bless that which you're not doing. If you're not speaking it, don't expect the hand of the Lord to be upon it. The, whole, the hand of the Lord is upon those who speak the word about Jesus. Here's the fourth truth that we see in the book of Acts, in the story of Antioch. The profile of a godly leader. The profile of a godly leader. Barnabas gets to Antioch and notice what he does. He exhorts these new converts not just to go out and do more evangelism. He exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord. Look at verse 23. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose or to remain faithful to the Lord with all their hearts. Why did Barnabas say that? Well, because he knew that being saved is not just a decision for Christ that matters, but the perseverance to remain faithful to the Lord to the very end. In the passage we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, so that you may remain faithful to the end, otherwise you have believed in vain. No perseverance, no salvation. And Barnabas is, is bringing this out to these new converts. Now, why did Barnabas teach this? Look at verse 24. He was a good man, 
full of the Holy Spirit and faith. The Lord now used the ministry of, of, part of Barnabas to encourage these new believer, believers and also to see other people continue to be added to the Lord. Luke's description of Barnabas reminds us of what is critical for godly leaders, for spiritual leaders in the church. The effectiveness of Barnabas was not attributed to his skills or his strategy, although he was a wise man. He brought Saul to help him. He realized he was not going to be able to do this alone. But the success and the effectiveness of Barnabas is not attributed to his skills or strategy, but to his spiritual character, a man full of the Spirit and faith. This is what spiritual leaders need in a church. This is why I pray for myself. This is why I ask you, church, to pray for me, that I may continue to grow, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. I love what uh, Fernando writes in his commentary in the book of Acts on this passage. There are many things that we can do in ministry without godliness and the fullness of the Spirit. We can lead meetings, prepare and deliver messages, organize and implement programs, win elections and head committees, but we cannot help people abide in the Lord. To produce godly people, we too must be godly. To produce people of prayer, we too must be people of prayer. To produce people who walk close with God, we too must walk close to God. That's what spiritual leaders in a church are all about. This is Barnabas. Fifthly, the priority of teaching the Word. The priority of teaching the Word. This is the fifth characteristic in the church in Antioch. Barnabas realized that the job was too great for him. So he goes and enlists help. He goes and gets uh, Saul from Tarsus. And look at verse 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And look at what he, they did. Verse 26. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Luke is emphasizing something interesting here. Barnabas enlisted Saul for the sake of doing teaching. For the sake of doing teaching. The evangelism was unorganized because everybody was doing it. In a healthy church, the whole church is an outreach program. Every member speaks about Jesus. David Peterson says in his commentary, Luke regularly shows the importance of teaching as an essential aspect of evangelism and as a vital means of growing a church to maturity and keeping believers full and faithful to the Lord. Friends, Paul, Saul and Barnabas were focusing on teaching the church so that the church was letting that flow in evangelism. Evangelism and, and, and discipleship are not opposites. They go together. They're two sides of the same coin. Teaching people what it means to follow Jesus made their lives so conspicuous that others on the outside gave these believers the name Christians. That's the amazing truth. The best advertisement for the gospel is other Christians. It is your life and speech. It is what the gospel produces of us. Little Christians, little Christs. The most effective outreach program is a church who is taught what it means to follow Jesus. 
That's the most effective outreach program, if you will. I'm using human language here. I hope you get that. And they're so conspicuous about what it means to be a Christian through their deeds and through their words that people know it. And the grace of God brought growth in their midst. That's what the church in Antioch did to acquire the name Christians. Oh, how I wish that would be true of us. And there's one thing they did, a sixth aspect that they did after all this was over. And it, it shows us the solidarity with other Christians, the solidarity with other Christians. One of the things mentioned in this passage is that this new church plant in Antioch um, gave generously of their resources to help the Christians in Judea. Now, by doing so, they were showing solidarity with the needs of other Christians. This is important because if you remember, this is what the church in Judea did in chapter 2. The church in Jerusalem was, was very generous with the needs of those around them with the needs of, the, of other Christians around them. Well, now the church of Antioch is showing a similar kind of generosity, but to the church in Jerusalem, their resources ran out. A famine broke. Christians needed help. So here's a church in, in Antioch, on their own accord, on their own initiative, out of the abundance of their hearts, they decide to be generous with the needs of other Christians. And the church in Antioch sends these gifts to the elders in the church in Jerusalem. Now, deacons were certainly help, enabled and, and empowered to do a lot of the administrative work in the church in Jerusalem to help with some of these needs, but it's important and interesting that this help is sent to the elders in the church in Jerusalem. Why the elders? Well, even though the deacons would be technically the ones responsible for the day-to-day -day distribution of this financial help, it was the elders of the church in Jerusalem that were responsible for the well-being of everything that happened in that church. We see here the solidarity that the church in Antioch has with the church in Jerusalem. Friends, this is what was going on in Antioch. This is why Christians were given this title by the outsiders, because there was a simplicity of speaking about Jesus. And that simple centrality was characteristic of this community. There's a meaningful response to true faith, a meaningful response to true faith, a turning to the Lord. There's a clear cause of evangelistic success. It was the grace of God, the hand of the Lord. There's a profile of a church leader who led that church well as he continued to grow. There's a priority of the teaching of the word in the life of the church and the solidarity with other Christians. Oh, friends, these things are true among us. The Lord can bless with growth. We can, go with, we can go and grow a church trying our own strength, our, no, our own strategies, our own power. And there are churches who do that and are very successful at doing that. But what we see here in the book of Acts is a group of believers speak about Jesus, learn about Jesus, live out what Jesus has said, and the Lord uses that to make them a great witness in Antioch. This is my prayer for us. Barkills, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, help us recover 
the elements, the characteristics that were so true of the believers in Antioch when they were first called Christians. Oh, Lord, we repent because so many have made a mockery of this name. Because we, many among us in this earth, have called ourselves Christians without acting, without living, without truly being Christians. So we have brought reproach to your name and to this name. Forgive us, O oh Lord. And help us here, the, the people gathered here, to show the beauty of that title once again. That we might act and live and speak and believe in such a way that Jesus is conspicuous in us and that the world will see Jesus in our midst, in our lives. Father, we pray that you would do that for us in the name of Christ. Amen.